it, wisdom is this thing that um, it's not on a 911 call, okay? Let's just remember that as we go through this lesson this morning. Wisdom is something that has to continually grow in you. And so I hope as we go through this passage this morning that we'll be remembering that, that wisdom is something that we need to ask for and desire throughout our entire lives so that we have it when we need it, if you will. It's like eating food before you actually have to spend the calories. We do that all the time, right? So um, anyway, wisdom is one of these things that is important. And I, it's also important to realize that there are imitations out there. It's no secret that in this fallen world, there are f many decoys, diversions, and deceptions all around us. I mean, just look at advertising, right? That's not really telling you what you really need, is it? It's trying to help you understand what they want you to have. Or cheap knockoff products are an imitation. They're a decoy to the real thing at times. Political rhetoric is trying to get your vote or to get you on their agenda. Even in nature, we have Venus flytraps. They look really pretty, but they're deadly to flying insects. And decoys are used in hunting and war, and we could go on and on. Sometimes these tactics are used to bring about good. Uh, which may be relative, depending on the situation. But let's take, for example, the Germans knew that so at some stage the Allies were going to attack across the channel from the United Kingdom, but they were unsure of exactly where that was going to take place. At a crucial point in D-Day, the Allies developed a deception plan codenamed Operation Fortitude. And it was designed in two parts, one to cause the Germans to think that they were going to cross the channel up near Norway, and the other one was designed to convince the Germans that the invasion would occur northeast of Normandy. And so what did they use for this decoy but inflatable bounce house tanks? <laughs> this is true. <laughs> they actually deployed these all over the place to make the Germans think that they had far more tanks than they really did and can put them in areas to think where the, the uh, invasion might be coming from. It probably would not pass today, would it? Another consideration is the book, The Man Who Never Was. Has anybody read that by chance? Have you seen the movie Operation Mincemeat? A few hands have gone up. Okay, That whole story is about a true event where the British used the tactic of using a, a dead body. Uh, they couldn't identify it at first or whatever, but they used a dead body to float up with false papers on the, the, the sands of Spain full of this intelligence information to cause the Germans to think that the invasion was, of Sicily was not going to happen. They were trying to divert them because Sicily was one of the most well-defended islands in the, in the European area, and it was a big stronghold for the Germans. And so they actually used this dead body, dressed him up as a soldier, put these papers in him, and made sure it got into the hands all the way up the channel to the German leadership. And yes, it worked. So it was quite an amazing thing. But it was a deception, wasn't it? It was a decoy. Another thing that we are faced with every day today, and this, I'll end the introduction with this, is really what's happening with phishing schemes. That's phishing with a PH. Anybody been attacked by a phishing email? Some of you aren't being honest. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> this is a very real, real threat. And it costs, when a, a, a 
major corporation gets hit with one of these phishing scams, it can cost, on average, $4.6 million to clean it up. That's en enormous. I hope that those that we've been hit by are a lot less costly, maybe changing a credit card or something else, but it can be worse. And these are the deceptions that we face today. In our study today, we're going to examine win wisdom's invitation versus folly's decoy, similar means but opposite results. Now, the theme for this passage is wisdom and folly offer their invitations to the same souls but have opposite life and death outcomes. MacArthur divides Proverbs into three main sections after the brief prologue, which is only a few verses long. Praise and wisdom to the young, chapters 1 through 9, and Proverbs for everyone, chapters 10 through 29, and then personal notes in, chapter, in the last couple of chapters. You may recall that, um, or observe that the first nine chapters have more of a personal appeal to my son, asking the son to obey and to heed. Chapter 10 is the closure of that, and then start, excuse me, chapter 9 is the closure of that, and chapter 10 through the end is really a bunch of post-it notes, if you will, or a catalog of a whole bunch of little bits of wisdom. The outline we're going to have for today has three main summaries or reminders, if you will, about these first nine chapters. First is wisdom's invitation is a path to life. Wisdom's invitation is a profile, has a profile of involvement, and folly's invitation is a path to death. As we study these together, we need to also remember that wisdom is, even though it's personified in the scriptures, it's not a fourth person of the Trinity. Rather, it's integral with the Godhead himself. It's part of his very being. It's to be understanding. It's to have skill. It's to have thought. It's have to logic. It has its reason, sensibleness. It's all these qualities that are a part of God himself. It's not a separate person, although it's personified here in the scripture. So open with me, if you will, now to Proverbs chapter 9. <clears throat> and I'll read the first six verses. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says... Come and eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. As I mentioned, the use of uh, the feminine here is personifying wisdom, but it's interesting to note that the word she does not appear in the Hebrew text. It's a part of every one of the verbs, the imperatives or the, the commands that she's giving. The, the word for her is there in order to keep the grammatical consistency with the text, but what's going on here is that in many languages, uncommon to English, there's a feminine and a plural, or excuse me, a feminine and masculine, and sometimes a neuter sense of each noun that is in the language. And we don't leverage that very well. We do say boy and girl, but that doesn't mean we have feminine and masculine nouns in our language. So in the Hebrew here, this is what's going on, and it's a natural to just call wisdom a she, okay? and then to complete that and round it out with the her. So, uh, again, 
It's a personification, and it helps us, and it's a tool to help us understand and gain a concept or an idea. Now, later in verses 13 through 18, the word she does appear, and that makes a difference in the comparisons between wisdom and the, wis the woman of folly. The woman of folly is much more a real person and a temptress. So wisdom has built her house, has this sense that something has been thoughtfully prepared and it has been completed. It's not an afterthought. It's not built on experience of life that we just accrue things that we learned. Wisdom here has been purposely built, it's been purposely constructed, and she has finished building her house. You may recall from the last time we chapter, uh, studied the chapter, chapter 8, when Steve was teaching us, that wisdom participated in creation. That's why we know that this is an integral aspect of who God is, his very character. Now, the meaning of the seven pillars builds upon the idea of this completed house. It kind of rounds out the thought. And there have been many people who have, uh, have come up with some ingenious ideas as to what the seven pillars represent. Some rabbis consider it a reference to seven heavens. Don't know where that came from. Some suggest this refers back to the seven chapters of Proverbs. That only counts if you count eight and nine together. Um, some map this to the seven liberal arts, whichever university you come from at the time. Some consider the sun, moon, and five known planets, which was true at one point, I suppose. Some consider the sevenfold manifestation of the spirit. Again, that's fairly subjective. Some suggest the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. How many does Galatians has have? Nine, okay? And some map this to the lamps of the seven sacred candelabra. Well, those weren't built, maybe, at the time. I don't know. Solomon was building them, and they were in the temple. But again, we have now at least seven people who disagree, which would mean that we probably should not make our own conclusion, right? Well, MacArthur's view is quite sufficient and avoids a lot of this controversy. He says that the seven simply convey the sufficiency of the house as full in size and fit for a banquet. I kind of like that description. That's very appropriate. And that's consistent with Scripture elsewhere where the number seven rounds out completeness. It's consistent with the way the number is used. Now, wisdom's invitation is grounded upon her perfect house. It's also grounded upon... Oops, I haven't been keeping up here. It's also... Um, grounded upon her prepared meal. It reads, she has prepared her food, she has mixed her wine, she has also set her table. Here, due to the former context of what wisdom is in the previous eight chapters, we must understand that, of course, that food here is not a physical food. This is a spiritual food. It's for the heart and the mind, and it's for the being to be able to continue on in life. She has prepared her food the word prepared here literally is slaughtered, her food. And the word food itself is animal of slaughter. So this is meaning that she has completely prepared this meal. It's been predefined. And in contrast to the woman of folly, wisdom's provisions are hers to give. We'll find in the later verses that the woman of folly is actually offering stolen food. So big, big difference here. 
And we're not getting just some cheese and crackers here. This is trying to convey the idea that this is meat for the soul. As we also read in Hebrews 5, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Very appropriate for today's passage. It also communicates, this prepared her food also communicates the idea that the menu has been set. There is a distinct amount of information, wisdom, uh, that is not coming again from experiential things, but from the way God has founded it to begin with. She has finished preparing this. It comes from his omniscient, timeless truth. In our fallen domain, we need to remember that all knowledge is not necessarily wisdom and that all thoughts are not all wise. She has also mixed her wine. This means that she has taken what would normally be strong drink and mixed it down with water and spices and things that make it more palatable and not intoxicating, but useful to cleanse the palate and also make sure that you're not drinking sorted water, which was common in that time too. They didn't have the water purifications that we had. But it's, it's intended here to be savory and good for you, not bad for you. She has prepared her table for her invited guests. The imagery here is everybody sitting at the table, communing together, listening, learning, teaching, sharing, inquiring, and growing together as a family. Feeding that soul with delicious wonders of wisdom. Wisdom's invitation is also a picture of luxury and abundance. Her house is big enough and complete enough for all who respond to her invitation to have a full feast, that there's enough for everybody. There's no need to hoard or worry about not having something. It's all there. There's plenty to go around. Wisdom's invitation is grounded upon her perfect house, her prepared meal, and her passionate call. Her passionate call now is very distinct in several ways. First of all, it appeals through her ambassadors. Verse 3, she has sent out her maidens. She calls. And having completed this preparation, wisdom is now sending out an invitation across the world. Now her maidens here, according to Kaelin Delech, if you pronounce it that way, I don't know, are the servants of wisdom, those already in her service. Examples would be the ambassadors of Christ, the prophets, the preachers, the evangelists, and any messenger who already follows wisdom. So in that sense, we are all wisdom's maidens because we have responded to her invitation to know God. And in Scripture, it's already been God's purpose that his wisdom be carried to the ends of the earth by his own people. We read from Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 8. To me, the very best, the, the very least of all saints, excuse me, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. We are in the Old Testament right here. 
We are a part of this message to share the real thing, no decoys of what is wise from God. And, and again in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. That's exactly what wisdom is doing here in chapters 8 and 9. And again, we also remember the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Her passionate call is distinct also in its appeal through to a teachable audience. If we look at verse 4, From the tops of the heights of the city, whoever is naive, let him come in here. The maidens here are calling to the naive or the simple ones, those lacking in wisdom and truth. Now the word naive here is the Hebrew word petty, pertaining to persons that are easily deceived or persuaded, showing a lack of wisdom and understanding, yet have some capacity to change their condition. They're not the hard rock, non-convert types. So she is appealing to those that have the potential of coming to her. And we'll get into the others in just a moment. Her servants go forth far and wide and take their stand in the high places of the city. The invitation is being made everywhere so that the place that is, there is no place to be exempt from consideration. Is this not also part of our call to be the ambassadors of Christ? It's every type of people, every walk of people, every geography of people, every mindset of people, everyone is to be invited. This is not a secret. Wisdom is not trying to hide and trick people into coming to God. It's evident through all of creation. It's addressed to whomever will. As we remember in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have our everlasting life. And we remember John 17.3 said, For this is eternal life, that you know God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That is what wisdom is trying to reveal. It's the real deal. Her passionate call is also distinct in its appeal to a spiritual appetite. Last part of verse 4. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. We've already covered the content of the meal here, but again, wisdom's personification in Proverbs is to show us that she has to offer not the literal food for the physical body, but spiritual food for the soul. And we find this in other places in Scripture as well when we are called to a banquet table to ingest the word which brings the knowledge of God and manifests itself into life from Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3 oh every one of who thirsts come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without cost why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance, incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies according to David. So this is her appeal to spiritual appetite. She wants all to come in and all to learn of God, whom she is an integral part of. Her passionate call is also distinct in its outcome of abundant life. As we see in verse 6, forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. Now the NASB 
recently translates this as forsake your folly, but Kinder and Colin Delech also translate it as forsake fools, as to mean leave the kind of people you hang around with if they are fools, if they exhibit foolish behavior. Now, if you look in the footnotes of your NASB, you'll probably see that it acknowledges this as a possible translation, but it puts it secondary. Wisdom's call is to leave both, one's foolish acquaintances and one's own foolish behaviors. It is a simple call to turn and repent. Elsewhere, we read in Proverbs 13, 20, he who walks with the wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. To continue to hang around fellow fools is to continue in the path of death. Note action to turn is a decision to remain. It's not a sliding scale here. You need to turn and follow the wisdom of God. In summary, wisdom's invitation is freely given to anyone who is willing to turn away and live a godly life, as we read in James 1.8. But any of, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, but a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, this is not a support for name-it-claim-it theology, right? You are to ask in faith without doubting, but it's not about doubting that you'll get what you'll get. get. Uh, in other words, being so minded that you can say whatever you want. It's about not doubting that God will give true wisdom because what you think you want is not always wise but he will give you wisdom if you sincerely ask for it. And it's also to not doubt that he is able to do whatever is wise. So the doubting is really focused on not doubting God and who he is and who he is able to do. You must ask trusting. That's what the word faith means. You have to trust that God will do what he said he would do, and that is he will give wisdom generously. Just don't seek to have your answer answered your way. That's not trusting. That's not asking for wisdom. We've been reminded of wisdom's invitation that it's a path to life. Now we are reminded that it has a profile of involvement in, when we respond to her invitation. Wisdom's invitation... As, a messengers, as messengers are being sent out, we are also warned that we are to discern the audience for wisdom's invitation. Specifically, we are to approach the uninterested in verses 7 and 8 with caution because there are repercussions for inviting the unwilling audience. Verse 7, let me just read 7 through 12 first. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you alone will bear it. Now, verse 7 and 8 
Here we see the warning against wasting time with those who are hard over against receiving the wisdom of God. We're not talking about here people just doubting or in, they're not sure. Uh, they have questions, but they, they don't like the answer. That's one thing. It's another thing to be a scoffer who actually forcibly wants to reject it. The word correct here means to correct or discipline. So he who tries to discipline a scoffer is going to get dishonor for himself. And here dishonor means shame, disgrace, um, to have a low status or public disgrace or associated feelings of shame. You're going to be embarrassed for trying to really correct a hard-over scoffer. Now, he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. This is Hebrew poetry. It's a parallelism. It reflects the same idea. The word reprove, though, is a more clear word that says to argue or to make a legal dialogue. You're trying to win an argument. That's not how we win converts, by the way, if they're hard over against the truth. There is a different way, and I'll talk about that. But here, you cannot reason with somebody who is unreasonable. There are people that are confused. There are people that are wrong when it comes to the things of God. But those that really are against truth and fight against it, it's not the time. Move on to other fields. You will also, if you reprove a scoffer, he will hate you. You will get insults. Trying to fix a scoffer or a wicked man will fail and bring unpleasantness to the one attempting to do the fixing. Now, this isn't to say uh, that we shouldn't try to share the message with all people, but once we find out where they're at, we need to know where we need to go cultivate the field. Paul was persecuting the church. He was one of those scoffers, but he wasn't won by a legal argument, was he? <laughs> okay. Those that have that kind of a bent to really hate God and to hate his word will take nothing less than some spiritual bolt of lightning to get them there. And we need to wait for that timing. After Paul was struck, he spent years, a decade or more, being discipled and becoming a wise man. So don't cast your pearls before swine, as it were. They're pearls of wisdom. Those who continue to demonstrate this hostility toward the truth um, it's, it's not where we're supposed to be spending our time. Where we are supposed to be spending our time, though, on people like that is doing what? How do we heap holes upon their head? Kindness, love, patience, exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. That's where we engage in a different way, not with litigious arguments of truth. Now, we should all be able to defend the faith, true? And we should be able to disciple others, True. We should be good expositors of the word, true, right? We need to be able to do those things, but it's on who we do them is where we are being warned. Second Timothy 2 says in verse 24, The Lord's bondservants must, be, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been laid and held captive by him to do his will. We must remember when we face people like this that they really are in a snare. And we are to have compassion for them. And because of that, we can show them kindness and gentleness. So as I learned the hard way once, 
Pick your fights carefully. Choose to persuade those who are at least willing to listen. Now, as a messenger of wisdom, we are warned not to continue to try and win over the fiercely uninterested, but rather we are to focus on the interested, where we'll see the benefits of inviting the willing audience. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in his learning. Now, wise men here are simply, as we would expect, someone who is shrewd, has a capacity for understanding and discernment. Now, the word instruction here does not appear in the text. It's combined with the word give. And the word give here is to, do, is to mean durable and healthy, not be easily diseased or uprooted. So in other words, it's about giving good things to the wise man, something that is lasting. What is that? That's wisdom. It's the understanding of God. If we reprove him, same, same line, same definition, to make a legal argument, is to reason together in a legal case. This is where we're supposed to spend our arguing time. And I don't mean arguing and like being mad. I'm talking about sound reasoning. It's amazing how the English language has warped our words and the culture, right? Uh, in this case, a wise man receives that reproof. They're teachable, eager to learn and improve. They want to understand the ways of God. That's where we spend our time. Just like we are all here together, we have made a decision to be here. We want to learn the things of God. We are listening to the truth because it's coming from his truth, from his word. As one's responding to wisdom's invitation, we are warned to discern our audience and to understand the consequences of wisdom by knowing, first of all, that the beginning of wisdom is that it comes by a fear of God. In verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, we've heard this theme before. We started Proverbs with it in verse 7 of chapter 1. It comes from, begins with, is integral with, a reverence for God. Beginning is the fear of the Lord is the first step. There is no wisdom without this step. To even be able to receive wisdom, one must have a teachable heart. Some small seed of humility that allows that truth to come in. Even Job knew the truth of wisdom coming from the fear of the Lord when he wrote, or when it was written here in Job 28, 28. And to the man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. There's also an earthly wisdom we find in James 3.15. I won't go there, but that is not godly wisdom. We're supposed to understand the consequences of wisdom, that the beginning is the fear of the Lord, and secondly, that the benefits of wisdom are uh, a life rich in years. It says, For by me your days will be multiplied, and your years will be added to you. By me here is the idea that the days will be multiplied only if one obeys. Okay? <laughs> if you read wisdom, ingest wisdom, memorize wisdom, but you don't act upon it, do not expect the benefits. They're not there. Now, by chance, you might have had that meditation upon wisdom and it came out and you acted differently. That's, that's quite possible. But don't believe that just because you heard wisdom means that you are wise or that you get the benefits of it. This is also the promise given in the fourth commandment to honor your mother and father, the long, long life, and lengthy will be your days. Honoring your heavenly Father with obedience to his wisdom 
seems then very consistent with this as well. We're also to know the benefactors of wisdom. Verse 12, if you are wise, you are wise to yourself, and if you scoff, you alone will bear it. The simple meaning of this is that you are what you apply. If you apply wisdom, you will be the beneficiary of that wisdom. You will benefit from those truths. And that's literally what it means in the Hebrew. Although you are not the source, you are the recipient. You will benefit from receiving God's wisdom. The opposite is also true. If you refuse wisdom from God and you are a scoffer, you will be the recipient of the results of your scoffing. Anybody ever heard the phrase, what goes around comes around? (laughs) What you eat is what you are? You know, things like that. These are little truths, little snippets that really are reflected as a reflection of God's real wisdom. Now, we've been reminded that wisdom's invitation is a path of life and that her messengers involve discerning the audience and knowing the consequences of following her. Chapter 9 also reminds us that folly's invitation is a path to death. Her invitation begins with her preposterous presumptions. I'll read 13 through 18 now. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. She sits at the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by who are making their paths straight. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Now, verse 13, this woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing. Folly is the idea of stupidity, insolence, the state of being in complete lack of understanding, and it implies the idea of rebellion. As a woman of folly, here, as I mentioned earlier, this is a little different than the personification of wisdom. Here it's the actual pronoun, she, as in a person. This is a real person you're going to meet on the street and then the town. She exemplifies folly in a more tangible way. She is the one who is the adulteress that we have read about in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 and other little scattered verses around. She is boisterous. That means she's loud. She makes a noise. She breaks the sound waves with great decibels is what it means. (laughs) Say that to your kids. (laughs) You're breaking the decibels. Those who proclaim their position in ignorance often do so in a loud way, do they not? We've all met these people, right? And if we haven't met them personally, we've seen them in some sort of a movie, you know, Oliver Twist or something else. There's some boisterous woman or boisterous man who is covering their ignorance with loudness as if it somehow adds credibility to what they're trying to say. The woman of folly is being naive herself, knows nothing about the true wisdom of God, and she pours her whole being into keeping people on their path to destruction. And knows nothing might also be translated as she knows no shame. And both of these definitions apply to such a person. From her preposterous presumption of being wise, when in fact she's a fool's fool, she goes even further to aggrandize herself with her pretentious position. We see in verse 14, she sits at the doorstep or the doorway of her house on a seat by the high places of the city. You see some parallel here? She's trying to mimic the very things that wisdom has been exemplified as. 
Here she's trying to be every place, everywhere, speaking to everybody, but her purposes and her intentions are completely different. She entices her suspects right from her own doorway, perhaps to be able to give them a little peek into her, her delicacies within her walls, so to speak. And like wisdom, she broadcasts from the top of the city in all the places of humanity, but she does so from a seat. And this word seat can be translated the word throne. And we don't believe this is really like a literal throne. It's the way she speaks from it that makes it the idea of a throne, like she's the authority or she's the one that is in charge. Remember, she's a boisterous woman. In any case, Proverbs is warning us that she is a decoy, a deception, a deceit. She's looking like wisdom in many ways, copying what she does, but having the opposite intentions and the outcomes are opposite as well. The warning here is that we are to look beyond the doorway. We are to look beyond the opportunity that's presenting itself. We may have opportunities in the workplace, opportunities with friendships, or opportunities in different things that we might do. We are to look past those doors and look at the means and the outcome of what those things are. We're to take every thought captive to Christ. Just because an opportunity looks like wisdom and comes with the same presentation and position doesn't mean that it is wisdom. So with her preposterous presumptions and her pretentious positions, the woman of folly makes her provocative proposition. It's an appeal to the righteousness-seeking audience, to those trying to be straight. In verse 15, calling to those who pass by, who are making their path straight, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. She's appealing to the same people, the people on the fence, the people that can act to some degree on who they are. She already has the scoffers. They're going to follow their own sensual ways anyway. She's trying to trip people up. She's specifically trying to attack those that are trying to escape from her presence. Okay? Those who are making their path straight. Now, we don't know if these people are really following a godlike righteous uh, form of righteousness that is a substitutionary right. Um, I can't talk. Substitutionary righteousness, or if it's a self-righteousness, we can't tell that here from the text. The point is the direction they're headed. They're wanting to head toward God. They're wanting wisdom, and she's doing everything she can to stop them. Now it's well known in employment circles that it's a lot cheaper to keep an employee than it is to find another one. It can cost easily five to six figures per employee to find somebody qualified for a position, and that just depends on what level it's at, right? I mean, the minimum starts at around 30000 or bu and above. She would rather keep her converts or her their fools that's already with her. Now, in verse 16, we see that she's a blatant hypocrite here. She is a naive one asking the naive to turn into her wisdom. Again, this is like honor among thieves. It's just not really going to get someone anywhere. Her wisdom is not of God. It's of the, the world, the devil. That's right. Now, her provocative position, proposition is identified by its righteous-seeking audience and by its appeal to sensual appetite, as we see in verse 17, through the, a temptation of that which is stolen. And to him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. 
Again, she targets those who still lack understanding, who don't have the fortitude to stand up against such lies. She's preying upon the weak. And to the foolish one without a new heart, still enslaved to sin, sin tastes pretty sweet. You know, at least those of us who are believers, we still sin, but we don't like it, do we? That's one of the indicators that we really have a new heart from God is that we repent of that. We don't want to stay there. Now, this contrast here is the wise woman provides that which is already prepared rightfully. Here, this is what is stolen, as I mentioned. Um, it's fun to be sneaky. I'm getting away with something. You remember feeling like that when you were a kid? I do. <laughs> it's like, oh, I got away with it. Uh, my little brother didn't get this. Or uh, I got two and he only got one. Whatever it is. Um, it's, this is what is appealing to the flesh. Wisdom appeals instead to the head and to the heart. Her appeal is also from a sensual appetite, but it's also an appalling outcome. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. With no fear of God in her or his eyes, the naive one has no wisdom to understand the true consequences of their giving in to sin. Proverbs 14, 12, and 16, 2 read, This is the way... There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. Now, if we were to step back and make just a few summary comparisons between these two personifications here, wisdom can provide true wisdom. Folly knows nothing and has no shame. Wisdom prepares a feast from her own provisions. Folly prepares that from which is stolen. Wisdom invites all who are naive and will listen Folly focuses on stopping those who want to walk straight. Wisdom appeals to the heart after God, and folly appeals to the flesh. Wisdom offers long life. Folly can only offer death. Now, when we step back and look at it, it's pretty obvious which is the right path, right? But this is not where someone lost in sin still can reason or understand. There's several applications here that we can take with us. Number one, and I just stopped at six. There's so many more that we could add here. But number one, don't be fooled by sin's imitation. Take every thought captive to Christ and his words so that you discern the ultimate outcome of what you are being presented in life. Back to the original comment that wisdom's not a 911 call. I mean, you certainly want to ask when you need help. But it's supposed to be an ongoing living thing. And the, the word picture I like here is that of a petrified forest. These are trees that have been buried and they have been soaking in the minerals of their surrounding to the point where there's no tree left. It's now the rock, but it has, in, it has penetrated and completely replaced everything that was there. Now, the tree is dead. I'm not trying to use that analogy. Other than if we want to say we're dead to our own sin, the point here is we're to be constantly taking in the wisdom of God so that it replaces every aspect of that which wants to do sin. Wisdom is, secondly, wisdom is free to all who honestly seek it, but it may not be easy to apply. The abundant life is a life of discipline. Enter the lush banquet of God's wisdom, feast upon it daily, and fellowship with fellow wise people. Number three, we are wisdom's maidens bearing her message, so share it and many will become all the wiser. Number four, these are up here as well, don't waste your effort casting your pearls of wisdom to the hard scoffers. 
Wisdom, number five, wisdom comes abundantly to those who ask. Trust that God has the power and the will to grant it. Keep on receiving, asking and receiving. Keep on seeking to understand it. Keep on knocking for each day's supply through prayer and through meditation on his word. These are themes we've heard many times. Number six, if you have godly wisdom, remember where it came from. It didn't come from you. And continually thank him for it. I like the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. <clears throat> for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolishness, the foolish, the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, these things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how unsearchable are the depths of your wisdom. We don't even know the tip of the iceberg. We only know that which we have searched you out for by going into your word and with whatever inkling we can, by the grace of God who has granted us repentance, we even seek what little we do have. But it's there, Lord. It's there for the asking. It's so abundant. And it's so free. Father, may we embark on the rest of our lives to seek wisdom in a deeper and ongoing, continuous way so that we not, are not tempted, even in the slightest, with the, wisdom, with the woman of folly. We ask this, Father, with your blessing. In Jesus' name.